Welcome to an archive recording from the Royal Aeronautical Society. This time we have C.F. Andrews' lecture on the Vickers Wellington, dating from the 13th of March 1967. Charles Andrews was a journalist working for the National Aero Press when during the 1960s he was brought in to bolster Vickers' publicity department. During the time at the company, a little visited shed was opened, revealing a treasure trove of material dating back to the early years of Vickers. With the aid of a band of volunteers, Andrews worked to piece together a history of the firm, which, in 1968, led to the publication of the Putnam Guide to Vickers Aircraft. The Putnam Guide to Supermarine followed in 1981 with E.B. Morgan. As the chair, J.L. Naylor, is likely to have said, there was no one better to tell us about the history of Britain's most produced bomber of World War II than C.F. Andrews. The archive recording starts partway through Andrews' introduction. Were Wellingtons. Although at that time the four engined heavies were then going into service in ever increasing numbers. Later in the war, specially developed versions of the Wellington played a significant part in the Battle of the Western Approaches. In the far flung theatres of the conflict overseas, the Western Desert, India, and Burma, the Wellington still operated as, front, as a frontline bomber long after it had gone out of service as such over Europe. In consequence, the Wellington remained in front line throughout the war, a distinction shared by its half-brother, the Spitfire. Nearly twice as many Wellingtons were produced than any other British bomber. They were the equipment of various times of bomber, coastal, transport and flying training commands of the Royal Air Force. A veritable United Nations provided the air crews. Wellingtons were the tools with which the exiled free air forces of the Allies sought to avenge the wrongs done to their homelands. So much for the operational achievements of the aeroplane. Enough has been said to indicate that it must have been quite a remarkable design for its day. Its longevity testified to its resilience in accepting the changes in its engineering necessitated by the rapid acceleration and escalation of operational requirements over almost the whole area of the air war from 1939 to 1945. How this all came about I now propose to outline. To do so it is necessary to go back to 1930 when the Air Ministry issued a specification for a torpedo bomber ship plane as a replacement for the Blackburn Ripon. To meet the requirement, Vickards submitted a design in which the aerodynamics had been supervised by Rex Pearson, their chief designer, he's on the screen in front of you, a very well-known man who was chief designer of Vickers aircraft from 1916 to 1945, a very long period. But the basic structure had been designed devised by B.N. Wallace. That's him. You saw him on the television recently, I believe, a lot of you. Who had been appointed to Weybridge Works as Chief Trucks' Designer by the Board of Vickers Limited, consequent upon the liquidation of the Airship Guarantee Company, with the abandonment of the Empire Airship Communication Scheme, which you will probably remember, some of you, was thought up by Commander Burney, following the loss of the ill-fated R101. 
As you all know, Wallace had designed the rival R100, which had successfully completed its draft flight to Canada and back. But this airship was also abandoned in the collapse of the scheme. The Airship Guarantee Company, which was a Vickers subsidiary, um, then was liquidated, as I said, and Wallace's talents had been temporarily left on the shelf in consequence. At Weybridge, Wallace began his quest for, quest for better strength factors in airframe design. Vickers M130 submission, that is the ship plane I referred to previously, was his first attempt to apply his airship experience to aeroplanes. In the tender, unusual lightness was claimed for the structural methods. Quote, similar to those recently so used so successfully on HMAR, His Majesty's Airship R100, end quote. That's it in the shop. You see the wing spars were double duralumin tubular booms with W-type webs of diagonal channels as in airship members. You'll see the recognize the uh, airship truss here. And um, also adapted from airship design practice, the fuselage longerons were riveted lengthwise from two halves of pressed duralumin this was a variation on his theme of the spiral booms which preceded um, extruded, they couldn't get extruded sections 150 feet in length but they had a cunning method of riveting a sort of spiral on these booms but this was a, very, a simplification of that theme and um, were made in bulkhead sections of frames joined by complex crude fittings to each other and to the fuselage struts and tie bracing. All struts were built up duralumin girders except the tubular interplane struts. Now this, uh, these screwed fittings were made a great point in the uh, design of the airship uh, R100 and he attempted to um, use them in an aeroplane. The career of this aeroplane ended catastrophically when, during manufacturer's flight trials, Mutt Summers, the pilot, who was Vickers' chief test pilot for a number of years, as you probably remember, started the high-speed dive test with full load. At 200 knots, the aeroplane disintegrated and fell in pieces, strewing the countryside around Weybridge for about three miles radius. The torpedo fell in a local churchyard, but the pilot and observer made successful parachute descents. The latter, John Radcliffe, who later was killed, unfortunately, in the Bristol freighter when um, the chairman of the student society of this uh, was also killed. I can't quite think of his name at the moment. Very well-known man, a promising technician at Bristol's. Um, John Radcliffe had some anxious moments when his parachute backstrap caught on the Lewis gun while the wingless body was upside down. In spite of this, he managed to present a full report on the incident, which incidentally included what he saw when he was upside down 
hanging on his backstrap on this fuselage which was rapidly coming down like a falling leaf and he was describing what was happening to this tailplane. And incidentally, the, the trouble here was that he thought that they thought afterwards that this was too weak, that just one's truck. And uh, at one result of the event was that the official design manual AP 970 was rewritten in regard to stru tail structure factors after Farnborough had made an exhaustive analysis of Vickers M130 structure. Actually what happened was the tail didn't break, it, it, it twisted. It set up a tremendous air, uh, download on this wing, which broke here. And then that wing collapsed and the whole, uh, the whole wing cellule came adrift. The tail, oddly enough, remained in one piece, according to Radcliffe, as he came down. Well, I got the copy of his actual report. However, undismayed, Wallace continued his researches towards a breakthrough in strength-weight factors. From these eventually came the unique geodetic construction, which proved its fail-safe qualities, as already mentioned in the fierce fire of battle. But the road to the Wellington was a long one. The initial attempt was made in the evolution of geodetics with the fuselage of Vickers' first project for specification G431, General Purpose Torpedo and Bombing Aeroplane. This concept was a two-bay biplane of normal Vickers metal construction, that is the wing cellule, with the exception of the fuselage which was uh, Wallace's first attempt at geodetics. At the same time, he was working on the design of a completely geodetic airplane of high aspect ratio as a private venture for Vickers to the same G431 specification. This disclosed such a startling advance in performance over that of the biplane that Sir Robert McLean, Chairman of Vickers Aviation Limited, bluntly told the Air Ministry that the firm were not prepared to proceed with a contract for 150 G431 biplanes because this aeroplane had put it out of date. In consequence, a new contract was placed for 96 G431 monoplanes to the private venture design under a new specification 22-35. Although a great deal of scepticism was evident in official circles about Wallace's revolutionary structure, which even survived to the days of the Wellington, I mean the scepticism survived, the inescapable fact remained that the Wellesley, as the G431 was named, underwent structural strength tests at Farnborough and showed factors almost twice as great as required by AP 970. Now, um, this is the monoplane, the geodetic wing. That's its first attempt at the geodetic fuselage. Here is the biplane behind it, with the same sort of fuselage as that, but with normal Vickers two-spar wandering web wings, wandering web spars, special construction they evolved with duralum and ribs when metal uh, construction became mandatory. But um, here on the left is the former of the first P932 prototype Wellington. We're already starting to see when this was the prototype forming on uh, looking at the Wellington structure. 
The value of this breakthrough in airframe design in regard to strength weight factors was amply dem demonstrated when Wellesley's of the long-range flight of the Royal Air Force broke the world distance record early in 1938, an event clouded by the Munich crisis, which was about the same, just before actually. But full of portent for the future, when events would follow uh, that proved that long-range, load-carrying aeroplanes were highly desirable. There was evidence that long-range sorties by military aircraft were now a practical proposition. This did 7,500-odd miles from Ismailia to Darwin and Australia non-stop. And the geodetic Wellington which followed the Wellesley was early in action in the war with sufficient range to cover any required assignment in any theatre. Uh, one interesting feature of these aeroplanes was that it was the first practical use for a long-range operational flight of the Hobson automatic boost control for the Bristol Pegasus. Now, um, this was introduced on this particular flight because it relieved the pilot of any manual control over his economical cruising mixture. It was automatically done for him, which produced the uh, optimum uh, fuel consumption. Also, it, it uh, stopped him overloading his engine with boost and therefore busting it up in common parlance, a thing which is not unusual in the early days of a boost uh, um, addition to engine power, you see. So it worked very well on this flight and in consequence, of course, it was subsequently used on all operational aeroplanes and proved a very great use in the pistons engines, which, of course, took most of the stage in World War II. The value of the breakthrough in airframe design in regard to strength weight factors was amply demonstrated when Wellesley's these Wellesleys um, did this flight. In developing this new system of structural design, Wallace strove to combine primary and secondary members in one complex, comprising a multiplicity of light alloy channels joined together by fish plates and angle cleats or brackets. The resultant structure may be generally described as latticework or diagonal basket weave. That's the common uh, way it's put by writers, they call it the basket weave. Uh, the chairman tells me it's a little bit heavy, which it probably was anyway, but in the, the outset. This is the interior of the B932 fuselage, the prototype of the Wellington. The idea has persisted that some form of this structural concept was in fact used in the R100, but this is not so. Dr. Wallace himself has said that he only thought of the system by looking at the R100, with its main structure of conventional airship members, and then looking at the wire netting containing the ballonets. He then wondered if it was not possible to dispense with the spars and struts making up by making the geodetic wire mesh itself the main structure. And this, in fact, this is what he tried to do. 
But of course it would have been probably better to have done it with an airship than an aeroplane, but it's a bold attempt to get some new, as I said before, breakthrough. A geodetic line is the shortest line on a sphere between two points. And of course can be illustrated by stretching a piece of string on a model globe. It's known in navigation as a great circle route. Well, as I said, as no doubt Wallace would have had more scope in an airship hull. But it's an adaption of to aer the idea to aeroplane design was to say the least ingenious. The theory is not uh, evolved to provide what is currently known as a gimmick. Although it is said that people in official places at that time thought of it in those terms. The advantage was a practical one in that the transfer of load from one member to another was by the shortest possible route and a multiplicity of redundant members provided an almost perfect fail-safe structural system again to use modern terminology. If one series of members was in compression the opposite series was in tension and thus the system was stress balanced in all directions. Probably due to this uh, feature that uh, it could take a, a whopping great piece of shell or something through it and still remain in one piece. Cutouts for cockpits, turrets and bomb bays introduced complications which were solved later by the introduction of heavy frames led into the geodetics, but these modifications in no way destroyed the basic theory. Dr. Wallace's team of female mathematicians led by Mrs. Hora Whitworth's collar worked out a mathematical thesis, but this is so com complex that it was rarely applied practically in the drawing office for detailed design. It is interesting to note that the Hiller Corporation of America recently asked for a copy of this thesis, presumably, presumably to use an advanced helicopter and VTOL design. There's quite a point there. It might be useful to them. Even Dr. Wallace would not claim that the resulting structure disclosed amazing re resilience in action by premeditated intent. This is one of the bonuses he got. But instead of showing you some of the more harrowing pictures of battle, scarred Wellingtons, a quote from a letter relating to this, whatever it is. You can see what it is. If you look down the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see the Wellington tile. Uh, dear Rex, this is to Mr. Pearson, Rex Pearson Esquire, Vickers Armstrong, Live Wavery. Dear Rex, dated the 16th of April 1941. I'm sure these photographs will interest you. They are the Wellington which collided in midair a few nights ago with a Blenheim. The pilot of the Wellington got in touch with us and landed the aircraft here without further damage. I gather the two pilots wrestled with the controls to hold the left wing up and the tail gunner said it was sure it was a Blenheim. The elevator is completely detached from the bearings and there's about three or four inches of end play on the whole elevator spar. The port wing tip is at some four or five degrees of increased incidence, but the whole thing appears still to be a Wellington, which is remarkable. The aircraft is here for repairs if Wallace would like to have a look at it. Yours, Ralph Sawley, whose name may be familiar to a letter written from the armament and aeroplane armament experimental establishment, Boscombe Dam on that date. Um, so far I've traced briefly the origin of the unique geodetic structure. The time was, was indeed ripe 
for a major advance in uh, aircraft design for all the arguments, discussions and experimental work that ensued since the end of World War I towards better aerodynamic, structural, metallurgical and motive power efficiencies had reached fruition. The political climate of Europe was becoming rapidly unstable. It was forcing the British government under Stanley Baldwin, pressured from the back benches by Winston Churchill, to make a complete reappraisal of its armed forces, and in particular that of the Royal Air Force. But before a major step could be made towards better performance in military aircraft, certain air-moded requirements written by the Air Ministry into its specifications for new designs had to be brought up to date. In previous tenders, it had been mandatory that the tail weight of the required aeroplane should be strictly adhered to. This limit had probably been imposed in earlier years to prevent designers producing heavy aircraft without doing their sums in the most efficient disposal of the material in their structures. Cases of such times were readily comes to the minds of the older members of the audience. The weight limitation requirement had the effect of tying the designer's hands in his choice of weight and hence his choice of power plant. Most specifications called for the fitting, indeed, of a certain engine, which itself led to design stagnation. The next stage after the Wellesley was a submission by Vickers for a twin-engined medium-range bomber to specifications B932, embodying the proven geodetic structure. It became clear to Pearson and Wallace early in the project design stage, that they were going to get nowhere unless they were allowed a free hand in their weights and choice of engine. They made strong representations to the Director of Research on this matter and Volkert of Handley Page, who had independently come to the same conclusion, also made a protest when he was tendering a design to the same specification B932 for an aeroplane which eventually became known as the Hamden. While no definite yes or no ever appears to have been given to this question, it was significant that during the submission of the Vickers B932 design, there it is, in 1933, and the completion of the prototype in 1936, the tail weight of the aeroplane had risen from 6,300 pounds to 11 1,508, term means empty. This meant in effect that the Air Ministry had tacitly accepted the advice of the Vickers and Handley Page design teams and had in fact removed the crippling terms of their specifications. The potential offered by the B932 design became the subject of new concepts of bomber policy. From 1933 onwards, its bomb load and range were being constantly revised. As early as 1935, the air staff were inquiring about the possibility of operating the aeroplane at an all-out weight of over 30,000 pounds with assisted takeoff, which was a very high figure for a medium bomber of those days, and when the really heavy bombers were still a long way off, Halifax's Lancaster's and so on. There seems no doubt that from the technical arguments behind the scenes about the B932 specification, that's Vickers' interpretation of it. 
and particularly uh, spraying the massive bomber force of World War II. The results of this specification placed the air staff in such a position to throw at the enemy equipment that was of every bit as good as anything they had in spite of their operational experience in the Spanish Civil War and in many ways a good deal better. By 1936, when the RAF expansion scheme was beginning to get underway, and it was realised that the vital necessity was to provide the greatest number of bombers in the shortest possible time, an initial order was placed for 180 Wellingtons, even before the details of a production aircraft had been decided. By then, the prototype B932 had been flown, at Brooklands by, Mo, by Mutt Summers on June the 15th, 1936. That's it. That's a head-on view. K4059. Trial showed that it disclosed it as the most advanced bomber of its day. Just as the prototype Spitfire was cre creating a great stir in its class as a fighter at the same time. K4049 was powered with two Bristol Pegasus 10s of 915 horsepower each, which gave it a speed of 250 miles an hour at 8,000 feet, an all-up weight of 21,000 pounds, and a payload including fuel of 12,500 pounds, which was the all-up weight exactly of the Vimy bomber, the ancestor of the Wellington. This prototype Wellington could fly 2,800 miles at 208 mph and and 15,000 feet, carrying nine 500-pound bombs. These figures not only show that the geodetic Wellington was of exceptional merit, justifying the fate of its designers and proving that the technical advance made by the Wellesley was no flash in the pan. They also disclosed in no uncertain manner what tremendous progress had been made from the venerable lumbering Virginia bombers some of which were still in service, and the later Hanley Page B927 Hayfords, which was the equipment of Bomber Command before they got something like that. At least there was no Bomber Command then, the Bomber Squadrons of the Royal Air Force, because Bomber Command, as I've already said, was formed uh, round about the just about a year before the beginning of the war. At the increasing speeds demanded by the new bomber requirement, wind protection was essential for the front and rear gunners, which previously had sat, as you know, in open cockpits. In the B932 prototype, this was provided by couplers <coughs> with a trunnion-mounted machine gun for manual operation. <coughs> Actually, this is uh, fared in for the RF display you know it's fair in, but uh, you've probably seen pictures of the thing. It looks rather like a, a glass head stuck on the spherical glass head stuck on back and front. A crew of four was carried with a supernumerary if needed. During service trials, the aeroplane was lost in an accident caused by overload on the horn-type aerodynamic balance tips of the elevator. These horns were subjected to full slipstream at full travel, although shielded at small angles which caused them to twist. The name Cressy was originally chosen for this B932, but shortly after it changed to Wellington. 
It was named after a town according to air ministry practice. We also followed tradition in that uh, Wellington, of course, was the name of the Iron Duke and uh, his family name was Wellesley, which was that one's predecessor. All vicar's types in which Wallace had a hand had a name beginning with W, in contrast to the traditional vicar's V. No time was lost in planning for the production Wellingtons and details were settled for the Mark I in 1936. The engines selected were Pegasus 18s with two-speed superchargers with allowance for the Pegasus 22s if the more advanced engine was not available in time. The more advanced engine being the two-speed um, 18, of course. The all-up weight remained at 21,000 pounds and the maximum bomb load, load was 4,500 pounds. Armaments was by Bowen Stone powered operated turrets designed by Vickers with a retractable dust, ventral dustbin following Hayford uh, practice. The geodetic construction of the wings left an unobstructed space between them for fuel storage and thus appeared one of the earliest uses of wing tanks. Today universal practice. That's outer wing tanks. Of course we always had uh, wing tanks in the centre section but this was of using the outer panels. That is the Mark One, with the Vickers turrets. You see the change that's been made from the configuration of the V932 drawing you saw originally. The overall configuration of the Wellington One showed considerable, as I said, considerable modification from the V932. <coughs> in fact, the aeroplane was completely redesigned and was undertaken in parallel with the V. 135 heavy bomber, later known as the Warwick. The airframes of the two types had a great deal in common, a factor made easier by the singular features of geodetic construction. The deeper fuselage introduced through the B-135 association accommodated some much deeper fuselage than the uh, prototype, accommodated the greater bomb load required under the revised spec and the aircrew dispositions were better, especially as the regular crew number was now increased to five. The horizontal stabiliser was raised six inches to improve its characteristic and the horn balances were deleted. Constant speed propellers were introduced and the under dustbin turret was, changed, turret was changed to one of Fraser Nash design. There's a bit of consternation over this because Mr Pearson pointed out that CG was in fact critical and uh, the Fraser Nash was fitted to the first production aircraft only. There was another defect of this dustbin, I don't, it's not embodied in that one, in that um, when it failed to retract, it grounded on landing the aeroplane, <coughs> which caused one or two um, unpremeditated incidents. During the early daylight unescorted raids on German on the German shipping in the Heligoland Bight and Schellig Roads, it became, it was found that this uh, dustbin turret was ineffective against beam attacks which were not premeditated, not envisaged before the war by German fighters. They found the way to attack well, unescorted Wellingtons because its gun traverse upwards was limited. The first Mark I was flown at Brooklands on December the 23rd, 1937 by Mutt Summers with the Pegasus 20s 
the 18 still been undergoing type trials. Uh, there was an undercarriage failure. That, of course, is Brooklyn's. You see, because Brooklyn's on the shed on the left-hand side, as it was then. It's a little different today. But this uh, flight was probably the time when it was uh, put right. The uh, undercarriage failure was uh, corrected, and um, with the Pegasus 18s, because although we thought this was the first flight, the trees appear to be in leaf, whereas the uh, first flight of the Wellington one took place just before Christmas. There are a lot of pine trees on St George's Hill, but not, I don't think, as thickly wooded as that in Christmas time. The aeroplane, this aeroplane was found to be nose-having the dive, as contrasted with the prototype, and this defect was traced to the new elevator arrangements. Various modifications were tried in consultation with the RE, and eventually a compromise arrangement, juggling with revised trim tab areas and horn balances and so on, provided the necessary handling qualities at that stage. 178 Mark I Wellingtons were produced at Wabies before the end of 39. Most of these were available for operations when the war started on September 3. I do not propose to deal with the operational career of the Wellington in any detail because of the shortage of time, as this has been recorded in various publications profusely, and I believe a definite book on the subject is likely to be written shortly by an author known for his narratives in this field. The technical material available on the back room story is plentiful and from it I have selected, as you know, the more interesting portions. It's very lengthy. Um, research has been done into this uh, particular technical story. In an aeroplane of such outstanding promise, the prospects of development were bright. The subsequent stretch of the original design and adaption to so many different duties in the course of the rapidly changing operational requirements in the stress of war has become a byword in aeronautical history. It, uh, the Wellington hardly had the glamour of the Spitfire, but it went through almost as many metamorphoses. Following the Mark I, the next developments were largely determined by engine availability. The Mark II, that is a very good picture by flight, probably John Yoxall. And there you see the geodetic uh, construction of the wing showing through the fabric. The remarkable picture, I think, is about one of the best pictures I've ever seen of a, a top view of an aeroplane taken by a photographer. It's almost geometrical accuracy. The Mark II, this is a Mark II, the wing is this, and this is the Mark II with the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, up, on, I, uh, up in the right-hand corner. There's the Wellesley in war paint. And those are very Wellington ones. This is a Brooklands, a line-up at Brooklands. I'm going to put that in as of interest. It shows the three uh, developments there. The Mark II was to be fitted with the Rolls-Royce Merlin 10s, and the Mark III with the Bristol Hercules 3s. As these engines would not be available in quantity for some time, a decision was made to anticipate development improvements intended for these marks by introducing subtypes known as 1A, 1B, 1C. 1A was in fact based on the then unknown, unborn, not unknown, unborn Mark II, was not an improved Mark I. The airframe was restressed to the same all-up weight as that of the projected Mark II, which involved a strong ground carriage with larger wheels. 
Fraser Nash turrets replace the Vickers turrets. The bomb gear and oxygen supply conform to the redesign, to that redesign for Mark II. The proposed 1B was chosen as a trial horse for improved defensive argument, um, armament, not argument, and, um, but it was dropped, uh, because, uh, with the other aeroplanes it was not found unnecessary to proceed with that one. All, now, all the operational experience uh, that had been gained up to the early part of 1940 was embodied in the Mark 1C. Uh, this was a most successful aeroplane. During the dark days after the fall of France, it was a principal offensive weapon available to the British war chiefs. There were nothing else to fight with. We were all based on this island with which to attack the enemy in his own country. Upon it was based all the subsequent developments of the Wellington, and a total of 2,685 was produced up to the end of 1942. By this time, the shadow factories at Squires Gate, Blackpool and Broughton, or Broughton, Chester, were in full production. And of the Mark 1C, Chester produced no fewer than 1583. Now I haven't got time tonight, I've got a long piece here about the government shadow factories. But these are a very clever idea, they're thought up in 1935, in which the uh, parent company developed, produced, designed, produced and perfected a design and then handed over the shadow factory, thus leaving the parent company free to undertake new designs, developments for special duties, such as PIU and so on. And it worked out in practice, particularly in the Vickers factories. And of course another factor I must mention there is the bombing of Weybridge, which of course these places are all ready to take over the production. Uh, the massive production of 3,416 Wellingtons at Blackpool and 2,797 at Chester vindicated, in addition, the facility of the geodet geodetic st structure freeze of assembly. A, a factor, as I said before, which remained a matter of scepticism. Not only in official quarters, but at Weybridge itself. The drive of Trevor Westbrook covered with a great deal of expertise on the part of the Wavery Tool Room, was responsible for so reducing the construction assembly to such simple terms that once what once looked like an impossible complex resolved itself into, metaphorically, a sausage factory. Uh, the chairman drew my attention to the fact before the meeting that, of course, this particular geodetic structure was ideal for maintenance and repair. They even used, I have seen a repair scheme which even used bits of wood and you could stick them into this uh, light alloy structure. The mechanised draw bench tools which were evolved from hand tools previously used for forming channels and other section um, in Vickers metal construction were um, devised for producing these geodetic members and these draw benches have proved invaluable to Vickers and BAC in rather developed versions, I must admit, today in the VC-10 and the 111. Same principles are used. 
Uh, now, on to Trevor Westbrook. I must say a word about Trevor Westbrook. I'll have a little... Uh, Trevor Westbrook was this character who you probably read about in Legendary and all the rest of it, but uh, he must be mentioned in connection with his production business. We're now back on the rails with a 1C. <clears throat> the manufacturers always worked in the closest collaboration with the technical departments of the ministries and uh, instructions were translated or interpreted by them from through the air staff. After the initial marks of the Wellington had been uh, proven in battle, various developments were envisaged to meet the increasing tempo of the air war. In the case of the Mark 1C, Westbrook had the inspiration to marry two sets of new requirements concerning improved hydraulics and electrics into one aeroplane in order to make progress. He proceeded to get his ideas passed by the local technical committee on which the RTO was the official rep, representative without reference to headquarters of the ministry. When the latter came to know about this they were in fact presented with one aeroplane for the price of two combining the required features of both. Thus existed the anomaly of a mark of Wellington which officially did not exist and for which there was no type records. Now I've got a piece here which is rather a little bit I really shouldn't say in public I don't think but you know Westbrook shortly afterwards removed from Vickers got the push in other words uh, um, but it was um, believed to be due, due to pressure from the ministry. It was odd that he turned up later as Beaver's chief technical man over the heads of the people who probably got him in hot water. That is the gist of what I said here. But the true story, of course, is this has never been written, never will be, because Trevor won't uh, bleat on that one. But he was a remarkable man, and there was, in fact, I believe, a representation meeting in the middle of the airfield at Brooklands of over a thousand workers who protested about him being dismissed. But he rubbed them up the wrong way, Mr. Chairman, and you as a, a being a, a, a civil servant will probably appreciate, as well as anybody here, what the implications of that were. One of the modifications introduced on the 1C was the substitution of beam guns in the midship's position in place of this beastly unsatisfactory ventral turret. Uh, all beam guns were eventually incorporated in all marks and with a Pegasus 18 now in full production with its two-speed supercharger and with Westbrook and with all its Westbrook and service mods the Wellington 1C gave the Royal Air Force a bomber in which the engineering was geared to the exigencies of the time. There it is, and that is a Weybridge in the shop, which is still there. It's been, uh, this shop has been uh, extended a bit since then, but everybody who knows Weybridge Factory recognise that place. Um, before leaving the bands of the Mark I mention must be used, brief use of some of the converted Mark I A's as counters to Hitler's secret weapon, the magnetic mine. A huge electrically energised hoop was carried below the aeroplane which triggered off the mine lying in shallow waters and was the first means devised of successfully combating the menace. 
Auxiliary power was supplied by first by a Ford V8 engine and then later with a DH Gypsy 6. Dr. Hudson of the RA worked out the narrow margin of safety between the aeroplane and the resultant water spout when the mine went off behind it, you see. But there were, I believe there were one or two dicey incidents in practice. They got a bit too close to it. There was uh, an operating height for this, much in the same as the uh, dam busters fly so much above the water. In accordance with the... Oh, let's have a look at this thing in action. Yes, that's it. That's flying over Tripoli. Now, these were used not only when uh, they, divide, they got the trawlers out with the sort of uh, a magnetised grid towed behind them. They overcome the magnetic lines in British waters. But, of course, you couldn't get trawlers into a, a place like this, which is Tripoli Harbour. And the DW1s, Wellington, they were known as DW1s. This is a, a code word to camouflage their real purpose. DW1 meant directional wireless installation, which is the fog of the enemy if they got wind of these things. But this is the narrow waters, like the Suez Canal and Tripoli Harbour in the, in the Middle East, they were invaluable at a much later date. And oddly enough, that we believe the RAF didn't. We've proof now, photographic proof, that some were converted by the RAF to take this system. Very extremely useful. Um, in accordance with the policy of unbroken engine supply, Mark II Wellington was started in 1938 to take the Merlin, as I, I think I mentioned the Mark II before. Um, the snag with this, uh, it was a great higher powered engine, but um, the idea of using the Merlin was, of course, in case the supply of uh, Pegasus broke down. Opposite rotation of the propellers with the Merlin and fore and aft instability, together with the disappointing performance, led to a great deal of test flying to get matters right. In this, the Rolls-Royce uh, Development Centre at Hucknall assisted considerably. Uh, the power, the greater power of the engines led to problems on swing on takeoff, a vicious swing on takeoff, and uh, various mods were made to get the tail surfaces right. Uh, the way that um, the swing on takeoff almost deposited, uh, you see this swing like this, um, the whole thing uh, had to be got right, this in directional instability in fore and aft because of the uh, returning from the enemy in a single engine condition. You just couldn't have asymmetrical power. The swing on takeoff almost deposited Group Captain S.N. Webster of Schneider Trophy fame, who was then the Ministry Liaison Officer at Weybridge, together with Bob Handers, his observer, into the notorious sewage farm at Brooklands, which was still there, early in the war. But with suitable takeoff procedures such as slightly closing the starboard throttles and rudder correction, they were able to get these things to more or less function properly. Uh, the Mark II was uh, a very good aeroplane uh, for experiments and uh, I'll deal later with one or two of them. Uh, notably the first 4,000 pound bomb installation the 40 millimeter 
heavy gun installation. That is the Mark II. Charles Brown, of course, picture. Um, the high altitude Wellington 6 and the Whittle Turbo test bed. That is the uh, 40 millimeter gun. Uh, all up weight of 33,000 pounds in a Mark II with a predictor sight devised by Captain Nanini of Vickers House, armament staff. Uh, this was an attempt to mount a heavy gun, an idea which had persisted for a number of years. I believe Bolton Paul were also working on a similar thing to this. The twin tails were found necessary because they had quite a lot of fun and games getting this thing to fly straight with this very heavy turret. And uh, it was the first, only one and only Wellington that's ever been fitted with twin fins and rudders. Um, the um, 4,000 pound bomb was uh, put in the Wellington too. And this led to some exciting moments in flight trials. Um, the trouble was eventually, after about five and a half hours flying, two aeroplanes quite independently, terrific vibration set up, and the chap thought the aeroplane, the pilot thought the aeroplane was flying, falling to pieces. But it turned out to be a, a breaking up of the bomb parachute casing. You see, these bombs were um, what we called in this country landmines which uh, over Germany were called parachute uh, bombs and it was to steady the bomb on its descent and uh, of course with the parachute loose one of them pulled the bomb right out and the other I forget the chap um, Mr Cox no, told this story perhaps he'd tell us in the questions what happened to the other one but uh, there was final success with this installation of a 4,000 pound bomb and it was approved for use on all Wellingtons and all aircraft of Bomber Command, then in service. The next mark of Wellington, after the two, was the three, shown there in the Western Desert, powered with the Bristol Hercules three engine. Uh, this was the first time the Hercules was introduced into the Wellington, or it had long been premeditated, even before the war, but it was now reaching a mature stage. It was installed with its successors as a pack unit or power plant. In this mark, the four-gun rear turret appeared to increase firepower. The Mark III was a mainstay and proper bomber command until the arrival of the four-engine heavies, and with an all-up weight of 34,000 pounds, the increase in payload from the original Mark I design had gone up by 6,500 pounds. With the outbreak of, uh, with the output of um, airframes outrunning those of engines, and with the threat of invasion in 1940, the use of American engines was considered. This is the uh, standard bomber command uh, version. Either three or ten. Ten was merely um, a developed three. But um, you probably know that some of you people, pilot, gunner, or bomb aimer, alternate position, um, navigator, or second pilot, what, wireless operator. 
used because of the uh, shortage of engines, as I said before, the uh, engine, the airframes, production airframes are running out of engines. But um, it was quite an achievement to fit an American engine in a British aeroplane at that time. I won't say this was the first time it was done, it wasn't, but uh, to fit an engine of that power in a British aeroplane was quite an achievement. There was much adaption was needed uh, accessories and all the rest of it to fit it into British service practice and of course now it's commonplace because uh, um, Boeing's fit Rolls-Royce and vice versa and we fit all sorts of things in different engines but this is the time, the first time that a really major exercise was undertaken actually there were 220 of these were produced all by the Chester factory uh, now the next one is, I think, Dumbo, or no, not Dumbo, uh, Moby Dick, I call it, Moby Dick. A requirement for a high-flying bomber was invented even before the war. And the two marks, next two marks of Wellington 5 and 6 were set aside for this purpose. This was the Mark 5 fitted with various supercharged Bristol Hercules. That's it with a turbo, exhaust-driven turbo supercharger um, for, to provide the necessary power at height. The, the turbo supercharger, exhaust-driven turbo supercharger was of course the secret of the high-flying American bombers later, but here isn't a case where we did it before they did. Um, and. Uh, before they got their fortresses up to the great heights they did later. But none was, as I said, none was able to provide the necessary power, so the Mark VI with the Rolls-Royce Merlin VI to a greater power at height was uh, chosen. Um, now that shows the these two aeroplanes, how they did this pressure cabin. Obviously they went in for a pressure cabin. There's a whole story about this, which is far too lengthy to tell tonight. But that is really a pressure vessel with spherical ends. Um, it's a pressure vessel inserted, as you see, ingeniously into the geodetic structure. And it worked extremely well, according to people who flew in it, tell me. Um, it provided much useful information on the function of the pressure cabin and was of use at a later date in pressurizing the PIU Spitfires and other aircraft. They bumped into these great heights, um, the heights were 39, 35 to 40,000 feet. Um, they encountered um, icing and uh, control hinge lubricant freezing troubles. But of course the requirement for these aeroplanes evaporated when the high-flying Mosquito bombers appeared and took over the duties for the bombing of Berlin at Great Height and all this sort of thing and all this that went on with the high-flying Mosquitoes. But it was an interesting experiment. 
64 of these uh, Mark 5s and 6s were made, but very few of them ever flew. The Mark 7 was designed an improvement on the Mark 2, but the intended Merlin 22 engines required for Lancasters and had uh, for the Lancasters. Uh, the project was dropped. So that brings us to Mark 8, where we get a new lease in the life of the Wellington after it had been displaced from frontline in Bomber Command. And that is over Europe. From the Mark 8 came all the coastal command variants, which played such a notable part of the war at sea against the U-boat menace. Beginning as an improvisation, the combination of the Lelite and ASV radar in the Mark 8, there's the washing line, there is a name for this, I forgot what they call it in the service. I used to call that the washing line. Um, and its derivatives into a major weapon was one of the prime factors in securing victory in the Battle of the Atlantic. It's not only used in Wellington's other aeroplanes such as Liberators, for example, later on. But this is where it all started, these uh, battles of aircraft against the submarines. It may be claimed as one of the first weapons systems ever devised. I'll show you why in a moment. And no doubt was the start of much forward thinking in this now sophisticated field. The idea of illuminating the target from an aeroplane was not new, but previously it had suffered from the handicap of revealing the attacker to the hunted adversary. With the arrival of ASV, which is air to service vessel radar, as you probably know, it became possible to track a vessel at sea in complete darkness and at a critical moment to expose a powerful light directed straight at the target. A fierce battle ensued between the advocates of the Helmore floodlight, that is in the nose of this, here, the Helmore, which gave a, a broadly diffused beam at a few seconds duration and illuminated the whole area and uh, the Lee pinpoint light. You see, there were two squadron leaders. One was in the air ministry and one was in the squadron and there was a battle went on and you can imagine all the battle went on in the ministries about this thing. But with the ASV complex, the latter one, that is the Lee pinpoint light. The follow-up of depth charges to accomplish the destruction of a submarine made an almost perfect weapon system comprising as it did two of the most valuable weapons in war, surprise and confusion. That is, as you see, a Mark GR-14 Coastal Command Wellington. Here is your Lee light retracted. This came down like a ventral turret and shot the light down. The ASB is in the nose here. There is a diagram of that. Now this is a standard Coastal Command Wellington. They're all much of a muchness, these different marks. Here you are, I'll just go to the ASV operator. Here it is. Here's his scanner. And here is the retracted Lee light. We drop down. There's the bomb and the long range tank. In this case, a bomb, not a depth charge. The depth charges could quite easily be carried in the bomb bag. That is a contrast to the standard bomber command diagram you've already seen. But, um, you see, this chappy got on the target with his blob on the screen, directed the pilot, and away they went and got a, um, a bearing on the, and at a critical moment, they could drop this lead light, well, the lead light was probably already dropped, shine the pinpoint on it, 
go close up and drop the death charges. <clears throat> Which, of course, as I said before, in much more sophisticated terms, is exactly what you're getting today with the, uh, well, more or less with the TSR-2 and the F-111 or whatever, 111 they call that now, don't they? It's all developed, it's all sort of came up with this uh, uh, tracking system with the radar. Uh, the subsequent coastal command, as I said, uh, versions became rather involved. They all different. They had various ASVs, marks of ASVs, and marks of uh, of um, lee light and so on. There was just that variant in it. Now, um, turning away from the coastal Wellingtons, uh, there's another interesting technical uh, point now arriving, Mr. Chairman, and that is. This T10, this um, Mark 10 I've already mentioned, um, with the arrival of high tensile light alloys, it was possible to restress the Mark 3 standard bomber so as to accept a higher all up weight and consequently payload and higher powered engines in the Hercules series. Um, DTD 646 light alloys was used in the Mark 10 and little redesign were needed in the aeroplane. But of course the significant thing of this was that uh, um, you had a much improved performance. You were able to stretch your aeroplane a lot higher and uh, um, an improved load. And in fact the Mark 10 uh, was the uh, main store. That's the command. I just showed you this slide to show you coastal command of Wellington's in production in Blackpool. There were 802 Mark 13's uh, coastal command from Blackpool and uh, 250 14's. That is the T10. This is the aeroplane I'm talking about with the uh, improved stressing. There were 3,803 of these produced, all at, Bla all at the shadow factories Blackpool and Chester. With the Mosquito, the, this is the trainer version of the uh, Mark 10, it remained in bomber command alongside the four engine heavies on general duties, but it played a most prominent part in the North African campaign and was in service farther afield as India and Burma. It was profusely used for training as the T Mark 10 there, and as such was the last Wellington to remain in service until replaced by Valettes and Varsities in Flying Training Command after the war. Uh, the Mark 17 was modified to take a mosquito nose housing a radar scanner. There you see it. That's a mosquito type nose with a radar scanner. For training night fighter crews, Mark 18, which this is, according to the ministry, which is a ministry picture, was similar with revised crew arrangements. In 1946, after the war, a number of Mark 10 airframes was adapted to incorporate all the operational experience that had been accumulated during the war years together with new equipment that had been developed at the same time. This Mark 9, this was the Mark 19, the last of the um, uh, Wellington Marks, 
but the conversions were done in service establishments and not at, uh, by the makers. In the troop of freighter and civil roles, urgent requests for from Middle East Command in 1943 led to Wellington conversions to provide greater mobility in that theatre. Military equipment was removed to accommodate troops and their equipment in seating of the old Valencia pattern. That's the Vickers Valencia biplane which superseded uh, uh, the Victoria. Later this turned into a major transport role including the airlift of fuel and stores and eventually for general passenger work at home and abroad. Many of these were ad hoc service conversions but Marks 1A and 1C were officially known as C1A and C Marks 1C1C when used for its purpose and became Marks 15 and 16 thus completing the whole range of Wellingtons from Marks 1 to 19. Uh, this is probably one that was on civilian operations carrying civil passengers with a civil registration. Um, a converter Mark 10 and uh, this one is with an all normal wartime camouflage on it calling itself the Duke of Rutland. There's probably histories attaching to these which I require the a serial on uh, the registration letters like A.J. Jackson and people like that to sort out. But these were probably um, leased by um, Transport Command to BOAC. But this one was probably Transport Command. The previous one may have been, or uh, BOAC may have had a charter to do the job, you see. Um, now we come to the end, getting on towards the end of the uh, story. Uh, a civilised Wellington, it was actually called a civilised Wellington in the early uh, things on it, not a civil Wellington. They actually called it a civilised Wellington, was accepted by the Brabazon Committee as the Viking, with a stress-skin fuselage containing a passenger cabin. The Viking, that's a Charlie Brown picture of course, um, Originally it was geodetic wings and tail, but after the first 20 they reverted to all stress skin, so that's where the uh, stress skin construction passed out under George Edward, now Sir George, of course. He became chief designer in 1945. A basic Wellington Mark II was converted in 1942 to act as a flying test bed <coughs> for the early Whittle turbojets. And later two more Wellingtons of hybrid makeup were allocated to this duty. They had Mark II fuselages, Mark VI the high altitude wings, and Merlin 62 engines, also a high powered height engine, and they tested 15 types of jets. And a total of 512 hours was recorded in 366 independent flights. Uh, finally, a Mark 10 was used to fly the Rolls-Royce darts, turboprops for the Viscount Civil Airliner. Uh, which brings me to the end of the story as far as the aeroplanes are concerned. But um, I can't pass over this very sketchy uh, technical history of the Wellington without giving the credit to these chaps and also the people who've helped me in the uh, research in dealing with this lecture. Without these chaps, of course, there'd have been no such thing as a wimpy, would there?
But they are remarkable people, I think, the air crews. They were the only people going to war at one time. And uh, I think we should pay tribute to them behind, in front of a Fraser Nash turret and a Wellington tail. The other credit I must make here is to Mr. Cox, who's done a lot of research on this, and uh, he's sitting here in the audience. Uh, we went through, I suppose, ooh, hundreds and hundreds of documents uh, to unearth a lot of this technical history. Uh, records of the technical office at Weybridge combined by a character known as uh, Sammy Seabrook, who was uh, Pearson's technical assistant for so many years. Um, immaculately kept, invaluable in this sort of research. It's a tragedy that a lot of the companies have in fact destroyed this type of material. At Supermeans, a lot of it's actually been destroyed, accidentally been destroyed by fire. But I must credit Mr. Cox with a lot of research into this which, of course, is a, I have had to cut it short because time is going on so rapidly. We shall... Now, I have done... There is a profile on the first part of the story, but in due course, the whole chapter will appear in the book on Vickers Aircraft, which should be appear in about a year's time. Mr Chairman, I think that brings me to the end. Well, I must thank you for a very interesting account of this singular aeroplane and of its long life and with some account, too, of the men who worked on it and the men who flew it. I saw a little of it during this process and the one thing that amazed me was to see a man like Rex Pearson, working peaceably side by side with that distinguished designer who started the geodetic construction. Well, as younger men, they were not quite so moderate, might I say, not quite so moderate as they became later in life. And perhaps our lecturer would, might tell us a little bit more about them in a way he's got any little anecdotes about those two men of such different outlook and ideas who managed between them, the one structurally and the other aerodynamically, to make a wonderful aeroplane. Well, Mr. Chairman, um, Rex Pearson, of course, was a parson's son and he swore like a trooper. That's the first thing I've got to say about him. This was his characteristic. I first knew him in 1918, when he was a young man, and he didn't alter one bit, even at the end. But they're all the same, he was always a gentleman, and the same can be said for Wallace. I imagine they had their arguments, but generally I think they both recognised what is so important, I think, in this technical business, and that is they both recognised what their own spheres of influence were. And they recognise that also an essential factor in this aircraft design business that it's a team job. In other words, you can't play a football team without a goalkeeper. You've got to have everybody in their right positions all teaming up together. 
And the better the team you have, the more you're likely to win the World Cup in aircraft design. And this is exactly how they seem to fit together. Now, I regret to say, it's no, no secret, I'm going to say this here, that uh, Wallace and, and Edwards, Sir George Edwards, as he now is, the boss of Airshow, never got on. This is very well known, I'm not telling you anything. But it so happens it's just a clash of personalities. But the clash of personalities between Pearson and Wallace never appeared to uh, materialise. In fact, I've heard Dr Wallace say to me quite within the last few weeks he paid a great tribute to Pearson, and he always does. Whenever I talk to him, he does that. Just that thing. Um, I think myself, in this particular line, that Wallace probably saved Pearson because Pearson's designs were getting very squarish in a metaphorical as well as a literal sense. If you look at the Wildebeest, it's a clumsy looking aeroplane, although it was a workhorse, he was beginning to flounder a little bit. And at this time, along came this chap with this new idea for a structure. He was wished on him. He was almost wished on supermarine, as Mr. Cox, no doubt, will bear me out on this. Wallace was almost wished on supermarine. Here's the kind of thing, of course, I probably shouldn't say in public, is that um, Wallace, in fact, did go down to supermarines to take over from Mitchell. This is the biggest laugh in there in all history, because had it happened, and Wallace had taken over from supermarines, he was sent down by the board of vicars, where would the Spitfire have been and where would the Wellington have been? Now this is an aeronautical piece of titbit which uh, I wouldn't like to see published but the point is it is historical fact. And of course uh, uh, Mitchell made representations and eventually the board of Vickers um, Limited had a vote on the subject and uh, Wallace was sent to Weybridge by one vote, and I know who the vote was, and then behind the scenes afterwards I'll tell you who it was, Mr. Chairman, you know him very well. I think I oh. know. Oh, you didn't? Yes, well, this is a fact. So, this, so the course of history, ladies and gentlemen, can be altered by these almost insignificant things. And I think the fact, I've rather spoken rather too long on this, because there's no doubt other questions, but the Chairman has raised a most interesting point on the influence of personalities and character on aircraft design. Whether it will be so in the future is anybody's guess, but it certainly has been so in the past. Thank you. Well, now, I mustn't ask, uh, occupy all the time asking questions myself. I'm sure somebody in the body of the hall would like to get up and ask questions, and please don't hesitate to do so. I might in the interval point out that at an early stage, just after Wallace had arrived, Pearson talked to a colleague of mine and myself and said he was a little diffident as to what was going to happen having had this man what you might almost call pitchforked into the camp with him but he said I'll give him a little time and see how things go and then some three or four months later he said things are going well Well, that more or less bears out what I said, Mr. Chairman, the fact that these two did hit it off and two other guys weren't. It's as simple as that. After all, there's lots of husbands and wives don't hit it off, and a lot do. It's exactly the same thing. No difference as far as I can see. Uh, technical background of the Wellington. I should say that, really, I'm a supermarine man at heart, a yeah, Spitfire man. And uh, 
I always regarded the Wellington as just another bomber. But when I looked into it and assessed all the facts, it might be a surprise to some that there were 53 type numbers taken out. Now that included prototypes and production codes, and of course the experimental ones. And of those 53, I can find 51, identified 51, but there are two that are still unidentified. But uh, the range shown on the films gives you a fair indication of the technical development of the machine. What is interesting, and uh, I think you ought to know this, that the failure of the central turret on the one, uh, due to landing difficulties, uh, they had a whole stock of these, and when the Mark 8 developed, where they dropped the turret with the mirror, reflected the lights. Of course, these turrets all came back into favour, so that Fraser Nash never lost anything on the deal, then all these, all these turrets were to be used. And of course, the Ministry were quite glad as well, because of course, it was a good place. But this sort of thing went on right through the design of the machine. Um, yeah, knee light, yeah. Use for the knee light. Well, there was the other case, Mr. Cox, of the... Um uh, DW1 engines, you know this DW1, this, this thing with a hoop? They, that, wasn't that first used for trial for the power, for the Lee light? Oh yes, this, the installation of the, well, an APU virtually today, was just the thing that Lee, despondently Lee, had been waiting for. And no sooner was the DW machines put aside, because at the same time, the degassing for the ships, came along and the necessity for a number of Wellingtons, you see, became unnecessary they were all converted back. He got hold of one of these and he converted it to the Lee Light, much to the um, anger of the squadron leader Halmore, who came to Vickers and insisted that he had two machines converted for his system. And the battle that went on between them, of course, makes a very good book for anyone who was interested. But that's just a small part of it. But I would like to say, though, that it was a great surprise to me to see the range of development that the Wellington was involved in. And I mean, it, it finished up as a trainer, which, to a certain extent, is where all good aircraft finish. I think that's all I can say. Can anyone else add any more history to this remarkable aircraft? I think, Mr. Lecturer, the Wellington was one of the last fabric-covered airplanes to fly, at least fabric all over the wings, although fabric over the controls, I think, lasted a good many years longer. Yes, well, this fabric, uh, of course, was one of the... the uh, you see, this geodetic system was competing with stress kin. And... Um, we hadn't got a lot of knowledge of Streskin at the time the Wellington was designed. The Americans had gone a lot further ahead through the success of the Douglas DC series, DC-2 and so on, with the cabins. And, um, but uh, in, we went, con uh, Wallace continued with the fabric until he ran into problems with uh, ballooning due to... Um, 
there um, differential pressures between the inside and outside of the wing at higher speeds when the higher speeds came along in the Windsor had a lot of trouble with the Windsor he then devised a sort of wire mesh backing for the fabric but what I was um, would really say is that he had got plans to provide a sort of flexible stress skin to go on the outside of a, a geodetic fuselage for a transatlantic Windsor. This was known as geosteel and it was an intermesh of very fine steel strip, about a thousandth of an inch thick. Then you say, well, so this is fine, you've got an outside, you've got a skin on the outside of the geodetics. What did he do about his pressurisation? Well, there he, all he had was a bicycle tyre inside his fuselage. We let him windows, we had an inflatable rubber insert inside his geodetics. He was very clever, this chap, you know. And he got this all worked out, but of course when Sir George Edwards, or whatever, who is now G.R. Edwards, G.R.E. as we call him, came into the saddle, he went straight ahead with Streskin's construction, which, the result of which you all know in the Viscount and so on. The success of the Viscount, you see, so it's a moot point as to whether these two would have ever agreed. Because they had diametrically opposed views on the technicalities of the business, apart from their own characters which we've already mentioned. But, um, there it is. But of course, um, We've not mentioned Wallace in many other connections. Um, the bomb, you, well, it was all done on the television recently, so there's no need to go over that. But of course, he's, then he's Swallow, which is, of course, the variable geometry, which we now brought back to, as he said quite rightly, from America to the tune of £250 million. And then, of course, there's his, uh, what I call his surf rider, which is the hypersonic um, stratospheric aeroplane just on the outside of the atmosphere, just skimming across in about three hours to Australia or something at uh, hypersonic speeds. This, uh, or as I also call it, the red hot, um, red hot iron. It looks like an ordinary household iron, red hot, this thing, a grid iron. But anyway. Um, and then he's working on a, an idea for midget submarines to go through the Northwest Passage for commercial purposes. And uh, this all, all appeared in engineering, I think, quite recently. He's done a whole lecture on this. This is another bright, brilliant uh, idea which the uh, mercantile, uh, the government mercantile marine people are looking at. And presumably that's another idea that the Americans will pick up shortly. But man to go on at nearly 80 and keep on producing these ideas is, is remarkable. Far in advance of a lot of other people, but he's a difficult character because he's not an easy man to be controlled, you see. He gets the idea, but he's not happy in handing that over to somebody else to develop. He wants to have a finger in the pie. Well, I don't know. I've heard Barnes Wallace say quite deliberately I don't want people with ideas, I want people who work out my ideas. Yeah. Whereas Pearson was the opposite kind of man, he was willing to have people with ideas and mold them all together. I think the Wellington is an example of, two, of the work of two remarkable men. Yeah. 
Well, gentlemen, I know the time is getting on and the clock stopped and the rest of it, but uh, um, nevertheless, uh, we time for another question, if anyone would like to ask a question. I know it's going back a long time, just for some of you. I wonder if Flanders would care to comment on the apocryphal story that if you used the Wellington for the towing glide, it stretched by about six inches. No, that is not true. Um, there is something that <coughs> I've heard. We checked up on this, and apparently there were used for towing. Uh, I know this is a, an RAF uh, canner, isn't it? There is something which I had to admit because of shortage of time. Um, they were, in fact, um, experimented with at any rate. We do know this much. The Boston Dam flew um, two Spitfires, or one was it, Bill? Two? Behind a Wellington to ferry them as gliders out to Malta. And this was actually, as we have reports now, that it was done. And they were seen flying by some of these spotter chaps. You remember them during the war, don't you? Those who, I was in the spotter business. They were seen actually flying a Wellington towing a Spitfire. But actually, I think they were. I have seen references someplace to them being used since Mr. Cox did his researches. And uh, since we've collaborated in the business, I have seen reference to the fact they were used for towing to a very limited extent. But uh, I think this is the lazy scissors principle, lazy tongs principle you're talking about, isn't it, where you stretch? No, they, could, they couldn't have been because if you look at the structure, that picture I put on earlier, there is a, there are in fact longerons in this business, so that would obviate that. It's a good story. Oh yes, well this is another thing which people had to get used to. You see the Windsor was a development of the, uh, of the geodetic principle and those the wingtips drooped on the ground. But if you look at any Russian aeroplane today, have you seen the TU-104? Well, you see it take off at London Airport. Its wings go up like a swallow. This aeroelasticity was then rather unknown. And the Wellington, of course, did exhibit what you so uh, graphically describe as aeroelasticity, that there was this flex in the wings. There's no doubt about this, but pilots have since got used to this, you know. The Windsor had a quite a, a considerable droop on the ground, but in the air, of course, it, uh, the dihedral came the other way, with a load on. But I'm told that uh, people who are often at London Airport say these Russian... I saw a picture of one the other day, one of the newer Russian ones, later than the T-104, and they have very considerable flex in their wings. That is what the gentleman, I think, refers to, that sort of thing. But do you ever know of a Wellington wing that flew off a structural failure? Not a structural failure. Mr. Chairman, uh, in regard to the flex or flap in a Wellington's wing, um, I'd like to say that I've flown most of the marks of the Wellington, and I've also flown several marks of the Junkers. And I must say that I was much more frightened, or rather concerned at first, in the Junkers rather than the Wellington. But both aircraft were very good. Uh, on the 
start story. I might add that uh, the wing attachments, uh, the geodets on the wing attached to the geodets on the fuselage, and all the loaders carried through them. But the main spar was continuous, and on the first machine, it was just left as a spar, and it was to flex. It was a bit disconcerting for it, so it just looked nice and cover over it. Yes, of course, that practice was followed on the Viking, wasn't it? That spar went through. There's a little on the early Vikings, there's a little sort of thing to step over. A feature we've had on other aircraft, such as, uh, well, the Dove and that sort of thing, the start of the. I could get in the motor car, the transmission shaft in the middle of a car, so you got this thing transverse and you stepped over it. That was the spar. Same it was, of course, that when virtually the uh, Viking was virtually. Uh, a Wellington with a Streskin cabin fuselage. It was an interim type of Viking and a stopgap until such time as later aircraft came along. Well, I think it remains for me to thank the lecturer very much and above all I think to congratulate him on some of the slides which were really wonderfully good. Some very much better of the Wellington that I've pestered one looking down on the Wellington from above, where you could see the geodetic construction. I hadn't seen that, never seen that photograph before. So may we acknowledge our indebtedness to him in the usual manner. <laughs>